Hello to our loyal listeners, and welcome back to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I'm joined today by Ryan Shields, an associate professor of medicine also at the University of Pittsburgh. Hello, Erin. Hey, Ryan. And today's a great day because it is time for episode three of our recap of ACMID, which for those of you who are just joining us is the European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Also, to those who are joining us, we are recording a four-episode podcast miniseries um, for BCIDP credit. So that's Board Certified in Infectious Diseases Pharmacotherapy. So if you are listening and a BCIDP pharmacist, you can go to the SIDP website and click links there to follow kind of to take assessment questions and get up to two CE hours for this podcast. If you're not listening for BCIDP credit, thanks for following along with us. So we finished talking about, in episode two, talking about the Merino trial, and we discussed some commentary and critiques to that study and also what the authors presented at ECMID and and why that study was done the way that it was done. Something that came up in that discussion was this concept of the piptazo dose and whether or not they should have used extended infusions. And the authors reminded us that there's an ongoing randomized clinical trial of 7,000 patients that's enrolling in 70 ICUs worldwide called Bling-3. Yeah, that's going to be a highly influential study, and we can't wait to see the results of that study. But we've got a lot of other PKPD data to get into from ECMID, so let's get started, Erin. Okay, Ryan. But in Blink 3, what's going to happen is, and the reason they, another reason they didn't do prolonged infusion in Merino is because they don't really want to confound these two things, right? We don't know that prolonged infusions are superior to standard of care yet, so they're studying that separately. So, um, Patients in Bling-3 are going to be started on either Piptazo or Miropenem and then will be randomized to receive the beta-lactam that, that they got started on either via a continuous infusion or 30-minute intermittent infusions for the treatment course. These are ICU patients. They're going to be followed for up to 90 days after randomization, and the primary endpoint will be death um, at 90 days. So really looking forward to that trial. And again, congrats to the study investigators for exploring that to answer that question. Um, but... One of the study investigators kind of did this pro-con debate at ECMID, which let me tell you, pro-con debates at conferences are also very hot. Like people love this stuff. Um, And and we're waiting to see the blood and and the fighting and and all the the controversy that comes with these pro-con debates. It's like pay-per-view on ECMID. Yeah, it's like, it's something, let me tell you. So this pro-con debate happened Sunday. It is symposium session SY094. So this was Jason Roberts and Mark Bonton, and they did this pro-con debate on optimized dosing according to PKPD principles in patients. Does it improve the efficacy of antibiotics? Um, And so Jason Roberts opened this debate. He opened strong, and he said, you know what? We're here to focus on how optimal antibiotic exposures really are associated with prolonged and sustained killing. And beyond that, and something that I don't think comes into the conversation enough, is that prolonged and sustained exposures and optimal antibiotic exposures are also associated with the suppression of antibiotic resistance. And so that is so important. I don't just want to treat this infection. I want to treat all the infections down the line at a population level. So how we use antibiotics is really driven by all of that. And he cited, to kind of work through this debate quickly, he cited some interesting hollow fiber data, which 
Ryan is like speaks to your heart, right? That's like your do thing. Do it. It's like your thing. More hollow fiber. Loves the hollow fiber. Um, so they did these hollow fiber data. This was Bergen and colleagues in JAC 2016. They looked at a clinical pseudomonas isolate with a piperacillin MIC of four. And in this study, they found that antibiotic exposures required to not only suppress bacterial killing, but also to suppress the emergence of resistance were a free semen greater than or equal to five times the MIC, which is a little higher than we traditionally think of our exposures. And so there's just more to PKPD optimization than just treating the current infection, which was kind of one key point in the debate. Um, and then he also made this point that there's there's no PKPD randomized controlled trial per se, but we've seen PKPD play out in randomized controlled clinical trials, and he specifically mentioned Doripenem versus Imipenem for hospital-acquired pneumonia. And so um, Doripenem failed in this HAP trial because patients, and they, they kind of think that patients with higher creatinine clearances likely had inadequate dosing, which may have been um, a part of the failure for that. So no, we haven't said like this is a PKPD trial, but this is in all of our other studies. You just kind of have to dig in and really tease this out, just like we evaluated that with Marino. Um, he actually did an audience poll about whether the audience thought that PKPD optimized dosing was the way to go and if this improved antibiotic efficacy. 93% said yes. So it's like, why are we even having this debate? And then amazingly, when the con got up, Professor Bonten was like, I don't even know why I'm here, to be honest with you. Like, I completely, it was awesome. He was very funny, very engaging. Both of them were great speakers. But he was like, I honestly completely believe in these principles. And the principles of PKPD optimization are quite sound. And he was like, but, I mean, I can actually have a whole con debate because there are no data. Or not no data, but there are very limited, very solid data saying PKPD principles that we know and that we model pan out clinically in our patients. And then he was like, this was funny too, he's like, I'm even more surprised by the number of meta-analyses there are about this topic, yeah. considering how few trials we have, which is another just as a clinician, good grain of salt when you're reading data, when you're reading meta-analyses, they are only as good as the data going into them. Um, but then he he posed this kind of interesting thought of like, is there even like equipoise to do bling three? Because clearly in critically ill patients, dose optimization has such a significant impact. And and Dr. Roberts was like, Professor Roberts was like, yeah, there is because this is not standard of care. And we have no sound randomized data to show this is the way to go. And I mean, there's a lot of logistical issues as a clinician doing continuous infusions in your patients. And so um, I think there's a lot into that. And so really looking forward to those data I personally believe in dose optimization, um, and but I also know the huge lift it is to get everyone to buy into dose optimization routinely in your patients. And I, I personally, too, can't wait for when we have beta-lactam TDM, which will make it even better. Yeah, the PKPD principles have really now outpaced the amount of data we have to support them because we all know this is probably the right thing to do for patients. But as a community, we really need to help gather some of this outcome data that convince everybody and make this standard of practice. And that's why I think one of the presentations at ECMA that was so powerful was presented by our very own Ryan Crass, which started to link some of these ideas together. Can you use PKPD and can you link this to an outcome? So Ryan gave a really great presentation in an oral session, 1168-1168, and also had a poster, 2018 or 2018. And it's all about this idea that perhaps linazolid doses should be lowered to improve safety. And the context here is that really we give everybody the same dose of linazolid, right? We're giving everybody 600 milligrams IV every 12 hours, or maybe we're giving it orally every 12 hours. 
despite the fact that we know there's a lot of interpatient variability in the exposures that we get with linazolid, we certainly know that also a significant proportion of linazolids are eliminated renally, and so for patients with renal impairment, they have decreased clearance of the drug, but also there's an unknown association then with exposure and toxicity. And when we think about linazolid, we all know as clinicians, one of the things we struggle with is myelosuppression, particularly for patients that need prolonged courses of therapy. And we know that this myelosuppression is associated with indeed the exposure of linazolid. So what Ryan did is he did a study at the University of, of, of Michigan with uh, Amit Pai uh, and some investigators from Italy where they really looked at two study cohorts. The first was a retrospective cohort from the University of Michigan where they reviewed through 341 patients and basically they showed what had been showed in the literature before that there's a significant association between thrombocytopenia and patients with renal impairment and indeed this was true in multivariate analysis when you controlled for other factors that might influence thrombocytopenia. Now, the second cohort is a really fascinating cohort because they were able to get linazolid levels from this Italian hospital. And in fact, they got 1,309 linazolid levels across 603 patients. So they could do a very nice population PK study. I'm so jealous of their linazolid TDM. That's so neat. It's, it, it's amazing, right? Over 600 patients where they have linazolid levels. It's, it's really fascinating. And what they were able to show here is that indeed renal impairment was had significantly lower linazolid clearance, as we would all suspect. And then they were able to use all of these data, all the exposures and all the patient level data to really construct a very nice covariate model to describe the, these linazolid exposures. And they used that model and ran Monte Carlo simulations to identify perhaps dosing regimens that might maximize the probability of hitting your therapeutic target for linazolid. And in this case, our therapeutic target is a trough concentration somewhere between two and eight milligrams per liter. The important point about this two to eight milligram per liter window is it's a window in which we expect efficacy for the drug, but also not undue toxicity when we have trough concentrations greater than eight. And so they ran a number of simulations through this Monte Carlo model, but some of the key takeaways are for patients that were simulated with a GFR of less than 60 milliliters per minute, so these are our renal impairment patients, only a third of those patients were able to hit this optimal linazolid trough target of two to eight. And the main reason why most patients didn't hit that target with renal impairment is because they had supra-therapeutic levels greater than eight, and we know that that's going to put them at a higher risk for toxicity. So the model suggested that perhaps the best dosing regimen for patients like this might be 300 milligrams Q12 hours, cutting the dose in half. Now, I think there's some important takeaways as clinicians from this study is that First of all, my big takeaway is perhaps linazolid is a drug that we need to keep on the radar for therapeutic drug monitoring now, right? We've thought about vanco and aminoglycosides because of their toxicity. We're thinking about beta-lactams because we don't know where our exposures are, particularly in critically ill patients. Linazolid checks all those boxes. There's clearly an exposure to toxicity threshold that can be met and also an exposure to efficacy threshold. So perhaps linazolid is a drug that we need to keep on our radar for monitoring. And clearly monitoring levels and adjusting doses may have an important impact on safety for patients. Patients. And so the context here, Aaron, is probably for patients that need linazolid and you want to get them past this magical 14 days where all of a sudden their platelets are going to fall off a cliff at 14 days and we have to do something. Maybe these are patients in the future where we can really monitor linazolid levels and improve the safety of this drug once we hit this 14-day window. Yeah, I think that's 
That's really awesome. I think Lenny's is one of those things you ask 20 people, you'll get 20 different answers. Some say don't give it for more than seven days, you're going to get thrombocytopenia. Don't give it for more than 14. And first, kudos to Ryan and Amit and, and the whole team for challenging the status quo here, for really saying, you know, do we know what we're doing with dosing this drug? We've given this flat dose for every patient, and it has significant toxicities. It has significant benefit, too. So kudos to them for really looking into this. I think precision medicine with antibiotics is really the way to go. And I think these data are actually published now. So kudos to them even for Further, um, it was published in AAC in May of this year. The title of that paper is A Reprisal of Linazolid Dosing in Renal Impairment to Improve Safety. So our audience listening can go and read the full paper. Um, Definitely go check it out. And Aaron, we love this science so much. We're doing a poor job at rapid fire. So keep us moving then into the next topic. Okay, Ryan. So next big topic was probably this session on Tuesday called Antimicrobial Resistance and Stewardship late breakers. So these were abstracts that fell into one of those two categories. And they really, you can break down all of those abstracts further into three main buckets, either incorporating rapid diagnostics into stewardship, which I'll let you fill us in on later, detecting and tracking antimicrobial resistance, and then therapeutic drug monitoring as we as we continue to talk about. And just very briefly, I want to mention one study that Daniel Regter of Heidelberg University Hospital presented, and, and mostly because he presented what is known to be the, at, at this time, or when he got up to present it, he said, we think this is the largest presented database of critically ill patients that have received continuous infusion, piperacillin tazobactam, and had therapeutic drug monitoring performed. And this was in one German ICU, so single center study, um, and they essentially, they did these HPLC assays that were performed in their clinical pharmacy of piperacillin. So also kind of important to think about, they're not measuring the tazobactam concentrations or exposures here, which as we know with our BLBLI combinations, that's absolutely something we need yeah. to consider. Yep. Um, I think just so much uncharted territory there with our, with our BLI exposures, but Piperacillin is a good start. And so what they basically said is, you know, and they only looked at optimizing exposure in the first 24 to 48 hours. So this was not patient or pathogen specific. This was empiric. This was saying we want to get the drug right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and so what they did was they're like, we're going to go for this three to four times the MIC target for Enterobacteriaceae and allow a little bit higher than that for non-fermenting pathogens. So kind of looking at this this target of 33 to 64 milligrams per liter for Enterobacteriaceae and allowing a room of error for 65, concentrations of 65 to 99 milligrams per liter were also allowed because resistant non-fermenters would maybe require that higher dose. And they just looked at patients that hit this exposure target in the first 24 hours of treatment. Um, so they had 484 patients in this database with 933 total levels performed. This was from 2008 to 2012. 53% of these patients had pneumonia, which I think is constantly a struggle for us. Is Hold how on, they're measuring beta-lactams in 2008? I know. Like, this is, it's just, it, it's been a while. Um, but And I think, I can't wait for this to be more readily adopted into clinical practice. Um, but you think, too, I mean, this is for four years of data, 2008 to 2012, and just now being presented, right? So yeah. um, I think this is just going to blow up over the next few years. But 53% of these patients had pneumonia. They included patients with renal replacement therapy, so HD and, and continuous um, renal replacement therapy, which was about 16% of their study population, so not insignificant. And I actually found the results fascinating because I would have thought that most patients, most critically ill patients had 
inadequate exposures, but they found actually that only 10% had too low piperacillin concentrations. But again, they're giving it by continuous infusion. How about that? Right. So dose optimization up front gets you where you need to be. And then 30% of the patients actually had a concentration greater than 100. um, And the highest measured value was about 300. And they said that, that, you know what, that's probably a little too high. And so we're trying to find this sort of sweet spot. And as they tease into this data, um, they, of course, found good correlation between creatinine clearance and piperacillin clearance, and they found that once your creatinine clearance is greater than 80 and patients with younger ages had an increased odds of sub-therapeutic levels. So we know these data, right? We understand this concept of augmented renal clearance, and this is perhaps a patient population we should target if and when we get beta-lactam TDM. The other thing they found that old age increased your chance of a concentration greater than 100. So again, our extremes of age, our extremes of clearance, is where this is really going to be valuable. Obesity didn't play into clearance. And so they they found that a BMI greater than 40 had higher drug clearance, but when they modeled that out in relation to renal clearance, nothing really played. And they said, you know, there might actually be in obese patients this extra renal component, but that's kind of hypothesis driving and nothing further to comment there. Um, And essentially when they used TDM, 62% of patients were able to achieve their PKPD target attainment compared to 34% that did not have TDM. So there's something here, again, we look forward to as we get more and more data in this space, Bling 3 looking at continuous infusions and and more to come with beta-lactam exposures. The, the thing about TDM, though, is, and I kind of mentioned this, but so this was an empiric study. So they just wanted optimal exposure on day one, but this was not patient or pathogen specific. So once I have a pathogen in my patient, so say they have E. coli bloodstream infection, the E. coli MIC is two, okay, to whatever. So, and I'm giving them a beta-lactam. If I'm doing TDM, then the question then becomes, like, would you dose down to that MIC to only hit this three to four times the target or five times or whatever our target is? We don't even know our targets. Um, Or do you leave it if they have these high exposures and no toxicity? I mean, there's so many unanswered questions. But it all hinges on this MIC or minimum inhibitory concentration value, which, as we know, Ryan, is an imperfect value on a good day. And it's only one piece of the puzzle, as I've discussed, the antibiotics and the bugs are, are just two pieces to a very complex puzzle of, of curing a patient. Um, so there's a lot of implications here. And actually one of the most brilliant ID pharmacy minds I think we have in the game right now is our friend Sam Aiken. Um, and he once told me this, something that stuck with me for a long time. And he said that the most fun thing about setting breakpoints for these infections or what's susceptible and what's resistant is that a breakpoint is an intrinsically continuous variable. So it's all about these probabilities of hitting your exposure targets and likelihood of treating an infection. And when we set breakpoints, we set this probability, but we do so with actually very little consistency across organisms, across bugs, and across organizations that set these breakpoints. And so it as clinicians, it leaves us a little confounded. And so I think that's, again, why these conferences are important to have these conversations and try to all get on the same page. And then on top of that, we set breakpoints with the goal of phenotypically detecting resistance, right? So we dropped carbapenem breakpoints to detect KPC and et cetera. But we know that that's not 100% accurate. In fact, there are data, and we've seen these in our own patients and our own isolates, that you can have an e- a KPC harboring E. coli and a mirapenem MIC of 0.5. So yep. it's susceptible. And like, what do I do with that? Can I use mirapenem? Can I use dose-optimized mirapenem? Should I use Cazavi in that patient? And and I, I just don't think we know. And this actually reminds me as I like get excited about this tangent that, Ryan, we haven't really talked about gram-negative resistance at all yet, which is 
Very surprising, considering it's you and I on this podcast. Yeah, you know who else is getting excited right now is Sam Aiken, one of the most brilliant brilliant minds in our game right now. But uh, we both agree, agree with that, and, uh, and kudos to you, Sam, if you're listening. I, I think this MIC thing is really critical, right? Because even in the best-case scenario where we have drugs that behave well, we know that there's a lot of variability in the instrument you're using. We know Vitec, Microscan, Phoenix, they all have their own quirks, and we get used to kind of working around those quirks in our clinical practice. But then there's drugs that don't behave well. You know, phosphomycin and polymyxins are good examples of that. And at ECMID, uh, Betsy Hurst presented a very nice poster. It's poster number 1733, which just shows this huge variability in phosphomycin susceptibility results against Pseudomonas aeruginosa. In this study, they used auger dilution as the gold standard, and they compared to e-test, disc diffusion, and broth microdilution, and there was very little agreement across these Pseudomonas isolates. So it goes to your point, Aaron. We put a lot of stock in this MIC, but certainly it's a moving target, and, and oftentimes maybe a target that we shouldn't rely upon as much as we do. I think another good example of this is now with these new agents that are becoming available, ceftazidine, maybe Bactam, meropenem, Bactam. Many times these agents are available before we can reliably test them in the microbiology lab. And in fact, many labs will get research use only uh, devices, either discs or strips. Uh, and I think it's important that you consult with your microbiology labs and say, hey, listen, Maybe we need to do an internal validation of these devices that aren't cleared by the FDA yet to make sure they're really giving us the results that we expect them to give us. So you need to use lots of control strains, and certainly they need to be validated internally before you use these results for patients. So this is a big point, and I think UCAST is really then doing a nice job about how to start thinking about MIC in, in a more clinically sophisticated way. Yeah, definitely. I think we're all trying to we all want to help people take care of patients, right? And I think all of these organizations are working to do that in different ways. Um, so UCAS, the European Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, they had a, like a five-hour session on Saturday morning. So they kind of opened the conference with, with the updates of, of this session. And um, they walked through how they set breakpoints and what the steering committee decisions have been from 2019 and, and 2018. Um, notably, all of these data are also available online for those who are listening and want to follow along. Um, so you can go to ucast.org and, and see all of these public responses and documents, the breakpoints, the doses, et cetera. But what I want to explain for the audience are, the, are a big decision that came out of UCAS this year, which will be interesting to see how the CLSI and USCAS and all of these other organizations that set breakpoints respond to this because I mean, honestly, no matter who's saying it, it's confusing to clinicians when there are three different organizations saying three different things. And so we need to know how to treat our patients. And so we'll see how these get picked up and incorporated into practice. Um, but what UCAST is going to do moving forward, they said they pretty much spent the last year of steering committee meetings talking about two major decisions. And one, they changed the definitions of S, I, and R, so formerly susceptible, intermediate, and resistance. And then they made the decision to, while they're changing the definitions, they are retaining those letters. And apparently that was a, a big debate, which I, I they didn't explain, but apparently keeping S, I, R was a, a big debate, but they are changing the definitions. And overall, their goal was to emphasize the relationship between the concentration of the antimicrobial agent at the site of the infection and the breakpoint for categorization. So susceptible, um, what was formerly the intermediate category, which I'll explain in a minute, and this resistant category. They also decided to take the old intermediate definition, which I think we all know is very confusing. Um, the CLSI has created a susceptible dose-dependent category with kind of the same goal in mind to remind clinicians that this is all about exposures, and, and it always has been about exposures. And so 
the old intermediate definition was kind of confusing. They took out the part of that definition that spoke about technical uncertainty, and they said, you know what, that's the microbiology lab's responsibility, and they're tasking the labs with that um, to, quote, make up their mind, end quote, about certain uncertain lab results and report them as S, I, or R to help help clinicians. So um, I want to kind of walk through this. Some of this I am quoting directly from the presentation because I, I, I don't want to misspeak, but essentially, again, this concept that all breakpoints are exposure dependent and that it, this seems intuitive, but unless the bug is sufficiently exposed to the antimicrobial at the site of infection, then there is no inhibitory or killing effect. And so we think need to think of this all on a continuum. And that the degree of exposure is determined by a few things. One, the antibiotic agent and the pharmacokinetic, pharmacokinetics of the patient, the dose, the frequency of dosing, and the mode of administration. And so for antibiotics, for which there is only one dose, or there's not necessarily a way to change one of those factors to increase exposures, well, then there won't be an I category. And the concern with this old intermediate definition was really confusing. There were a lot of moving parts to it. And essentially, as you know, people just treat that as R. They see I and they're like, that doesn't work. You know what our micro lab director says? I stands for I don't know. Exactly. That's I hadn't heard that, but that's actually so true. And so people weren't no one knows what to do with I, and so they're trying to help clinicians have some sense of what to do with it. Um, and in fact, intermediate was even lumped together in some surveillance studies as non-susceptible. Um, and so, and then they also said, you know, you can take this one of two ways. You, you can make this I category so wide and so inclusive that then no one can ever go wrong, and, and that's not really appropriate either. So you really need to determine what this exposure is um, that can help clinicians use these drugs usefully. And so what they are changing the definitions to, and again, this document is posted on the UCAS website to walk through, but S is now going to mean susceptible standard dosing regimen, so that's a normal exposure. I is going to stand for susceptible increased exposure. And so what that means is that the, there's a high likelihood of therapeutic success because exposure to the agent is increased by adjusting the dosing regimen or by its concentration at the site of infection. Um, and they said labs can actually use this language in reporting it, so they can say the isolate is susceptible at increased exposures. And again, some, some cases won't have an I category because there isn't a way to safely increase the exposure. Um, but with this susceptible increased exposure designation, you can no longer lump I in with R and call them non-susceptible for any kind of surveillance or epi study. So that'll be important as we start to read European data and other data coming from outside the U.S. Um, and then resistant still, R still means resistant. So the dosing table that they use to set this S and then I, which is susceptible increased exposure, is available online in addition to their clinical breakpoint data. The CLSI M100 um, is also available online and free, so this would be the U.S. version kind of of this. The dosing is listed in that table too, and so it's important as a clinician to know when you're thinking about the breakpoint what dose that breakpoint is recommended for. Um, for example, ceftolazane tazobactam, which we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the only breakpoint that's set right now is for the 1.5 Q8 dose. Yep. And so we don't know what's going to be considered susceptible, intermediate, dose-dependent, susceptible, increased exposure, whatever you want to call it, um, for the 3-gram dose. And so all of those things are constantly under evaluation. And then the most interesting thing they discussed, and I'll leave us here, but 
UCAST ended with the, a preliminary discussion that's still under consultation, so this is not yet approved, but the, a concept of making everything I or making everything susceptible increased exposure for certain bug-drug combinations. Now, I thought this sounded crazy when I first listened to it, but the CLSI, which is the United States organization, actually just voted on this same concept in their June meeting with relation to polymyxin antibiotics. So what they have voted on now is that there is no longer an S or susceptible category for Enterobacteriaceae, Pseudomonas, and Acinetobacter for the polymyxins. So now the breakpoint of less than or equal to two is applied to all three of those organisms, but it is all intermediate. So there is no susceptible. The reason that they did this, at least from the buzz on social media coming out of that summer meeting, was that it was meant to give pause to the use of the polymyxin agents, particularly for pneumonia, where as we know, systemically administered polymyxins are very unlikely to be effective for pneumonia, and overall to discourage monotherapy. Now, what UCAST is proposing is, is different in that they're discussing making the breakpoint for all anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams for the treatment of pseudomonal infections in this I category, but again, it's not to give clinicians pause, it's to actually encourage use, but at increased exposure. So again, the new definition of susceptible increased exposure has been approved, that has been passed, um, and what is on the table that has not been approved yet is now how do they apply this for certain bug drug combos and for pseudomon the treatment of pseudomonas, they're considering putting all anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams into this susceptible increased exposure bucket to really emphasize the importance of dose optimization for this organism and for these drugs. So really interesting concepts, prelim discussions, and it'll be very, very important for clinicians to know this down the line, particularly if there's differences between CLSI and UCAST, and as we're reading data and collaborating and, and recognizing how we apply these MICs and breakpoints to our organisms and how we treat our patients. Yeah, and it's really a fascinating conversation. And you can see the burden that will be coming to clinical pharmacists to educate providers on what this all means and how they can optimize doses. But the part I like best and, and is well said by Dr. Nicolau is S doesn't always equal success, right? And so this initiative really does push people forward to stop and think about what they're doing think about the doses, and as pharmacists, we can have a huge impact in helping providers get the dose right for these kinds of patients. Yeah, I agree, Ryan. And just the concept of the fact that beta-lactams, I can safely push my dose and give more drug and, and try to dose optimize, but for polymyxins, that's probably not the case. And so applying one definition across multiple drugs is, is, is very difficult to do, and I think we're still striving for what the right the best way to do this is. So more to come in that space. Um, but I think this wraps up episode three, Ryan, as much as I'd like to keep talking about this all day. Um, we have to close this one out so we can rejoin our audience with episode four. Thank you guys for listening. This is Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast or Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, and we hope you have a great day.